0: One word that could characterize this text, loopholes. Legitimate, and we all know, right, that there's different types of loopholes. We all know that they exist. There are those legitimate, above-the-board types of loopholes, along with the more villainous and malevolent types of loopholes. And many of us, if we find one of those legitimate types of loopholes, one of those Open loopholes, by the book types, when we find one, if we find us find one, so long as that loophole is simply the capitalizing on an oversight that's still totally within the rules, we're fine to exploit those, we're even happy to exploit those sometimes to our advantage. Here's what I mean. This week I was reading story after story. I just typed in loopholes under the internet and I, saw, I heard millions of stories of people finding and exploiting loopholes story after story, anecdote after anecdote, from people who identified such holes in the system and maximized those holes for their benefit. And the one that stuck out to me was this. It's a representative tale of a few college buddies visiting the local grocery store to buy some cereal for the week. When they arrived at the store and they hit up the cereal aisle, they noticed that General Mills cereal was on sale. And listen to this. The sale was, if you buy four boxes, the price goes down to a dollar per box. I have no idea how long ago this was, because try to find a cereal box for a dollar now, it's next to impossible. One dollar for a box of cereal, I wish. So they picked up four boxes, they went to the self-checkout, and after their transaction was completed, the machine spit out for them a coupon for four dollars off their next purchase. So what do these young, hungry college boys then go and do? They go and they pick up four more boxes, bring them to the self-checkout thinking, well, if we use the coupon, there's no way that another $4 coupon is going to spit out after it, right? They run the four boxes through, $4, use the coupon, and then bag them up, and boom, another coupon comes out. Now, if you're these gentlemen, what are you going to do? If you're a hungry college student, What are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you what they did. Immediately went and grabbed the shopping cart, and they cleared out the entire aisle of General Mills cereal. 300 boxes of General Mills cereal. And every time they'd run it through, $4, $4, $4, $4, they got 300 boxes of General Mills cereal for less than $5. I heard it. Wow. (laughs) I hear you. Yeah. And I mean, the store switched it up after they left because they, they, they were caught in the loophole, but they couldn't do anything about it during the time when they were running it all through because it was above board. And I mean, I love cereal. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, that is one of my favorite cereals of all time, and it's a General Mills cereal. I could not imagine what I would do with three. You'd see a much weightier man before you if I had 300 boxes of cereal. A question that I did have, however, was how did they get all the money? How did they get the money for all the milk? <laughs> but the story didn't get that far. And I know that some of you, at one point, maybe in the past, maybe you got into that whole extreme couponing craze back before the stores got wise. You remember those? There was a time when there was shows on TV about extreme couponing and how how, lit, how cheap people could get things. And I can remember my wife clipping and cutting coupons. She, we were all over this. We were making like $18,000 as a household. And she was clipping every coupon and looking at every site to try and figure out how to maximize everything. And one day she came home, head held high, super proud with two bags filled with shaving cream. <laughs> and announced as she walked into the house, guess how much I paid for all of these, Gino? And I'm like, I don't know how much. Nothing! I shaved for a decade on those shaving creams. (laughs) So there are definitely loopholes like that that are not actually a breaking of any laws, but were instead oversights by the companies, dispensing the coupons. But whatever the case, everything went above board, through the cashier, was done above it, and we are okay with those types of loopholes, right? There are, however, more sinister types of loophole exploitation of the sort and type that were crafted and practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees in Christ's day. In that when a Pharisee took an oath... In the days of Christ, when a Pharisee took upon himself a solemn promise or committed himself to the performance of some duty or the repayment of some debt, the person that was listening to the Pharisee make that oath had to listen very carefully because the scribes and Pharisees in this day had developed a convoluted web of loopholes and escape clauses by which to look good when they, when they made the promise or when they made the oath, But when the time had come for the person who had the oath made to them to come and collect on that oath in private, they could point back to their exact words in order to elude or to avoid or to dodge the original oath that they had made. A way by which to lie to people and then justify themselves in their lies to people. Hear it again. Listen to to our text this morning again. Verse 16. If anyone, Jesus said, you say... If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. And again, in verse 18, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Can you hear in those two instances the fine distinctions that are being made by the scribes and the Pharisees in their oath-making? It's the equivalent of children swearing up and down that they're going to do whatever it is that they promised, all the while they had their fingers crossed in the, behind their backs. And when you come to make good on that promise, they say, my fingers were crossed behind my back, so I don't actually have to do what I said I was going to do. And for the Pharisees, unless the person to whom they swore an oath was listening with intent, and their ears were peeled Unless they understood the complex web of binding and non-binding oaths, that person might come to collect what they think they are owed by that scribe or Pharisee, only to hear the Pharisee say something like, well, I don't know if you listened correctly, but I only swore by the temple, not by the, by the gold in the temple. Or I swore by the altar, not by the gift on the altar. Therefore, my oath to you is not binding. Go your way. May the Lord bless you. Now, how would you respond to such a person playing such a game with you. Talk about bringing disrepute to the name of the Lord, right? Talk about this level of dishonesty that brings upon the name of the Lord defamation. Think about what this does or what this did to the average Israelite and their view of the Lord when his so-called representatives were themselves so deceptive and so dishonest with their words. And so as you come to Matthew 23, you will see in these verses, Jesus pronounces a rather clear condemnation, denouncing the Pharisees for this caginess of speech. He pronounces a woe against these hypocrites, which, I, which we said at the beginning is a, is a condemnation, a clear-cut condemnation to them and their attitudes and their actions. It's a woe against these hypocrites who claim that they obey God's word, but can't even keep such a clear and simple command as, You shall not lie. For this reason, and for many others, Jesus in verse 16 called them, You blind Guides. You see that? They were so blinded by their self-centeredness, by their own desire for reputation, that they really didn't care about anyone outside of themselves, both as individual Pharisees and as a group, as a collective of Pharisees. Everything they did was in some way, shape, or form for their own benefit, the increase of their own image and their own esteem in the eyes of everyone around them. And in this context, Jesus wonders out loud for all the crowds to hear. What good is a blind guide like this? What good are those who, while claiming to lead and claiming to know the way to the kingdom, but actually have no clue where they are leading anyone? What good are leaders who don't know the will of God and the word of God and yet believe themselves to be fit for the role of guiding God's people in God's ways? Jesus made it clear to all who follow such leaders, all who follow such blind blind guides, whether the guides be the scribes and Pharisees of yesterday or the blind guides who don't know where they're going and what they're doing today, those who don't stand upon the authority of God, to all who follow such leaders, hear the word of Jesus as he's already discussed this subject in the Sermon on the Mount way back in Matthew chapter 5. Or Matthew chapter, this is, uh, we'll talk about this Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew chapter 15, he was talking to the Pharisees and he said this, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. I want you to just think about this for a second with me, okay? Imagine that you are now planning your vacation. It's a wonderful time, isn't it, when you're planning your vacation, and you decide, you know what I want to do? I want to go on a wilderness safari on the African plains. Would you sign up for the excursion if the guide that was available to you happened to be unfit and unqualified? Would you allow an incompetent man to lead you out into a wilderness teeming with lions and hyenas and crocodiles and poisonous snakes? If you're anything like me, No way! What about skydiving? Some of you might like skydiving. I would never sign up for skydiving in the first place, but some of you might be more adventurous than I. I'm like Jacob. If you go back to Genesis, Jacob was the man who loved to dwell in the tents. And Esau was the man who loved to be out in the field. Maybe you're more like Esau, and you would jump out of a plane if everything was right. If you wanted to try your hand at skydiving, Would you sign up for and allow some inept, blundering and clumsy fool to pack your chute, lead you on the plane, and push you out the door at 10,000 feet? I hope not. What about scuba diving? Now, if there was something I might want to do, this is it. I love the ocean. It's a terrifying place, but I'm drawn to it for some reason. And if you were as well, Would you trust an unskilled amateur to take you down into the ocean's abyss where sharks and poisonous jellyfish, the pressure of the water and the possibility of the bends awaits you should you descend too quickly and ascend to the surface too quickly? No! One more. Would you trust an incapable, unqualified, unequipped lawyer to craft your legally binding will? or to fight and defend you against a prosecutor who is seeking to destroy your life financially or by imprisonment? Of course not. What kind of lawyer are you going to seek out? The best one you can get, right? These are all earthly examples. And as you know, you and I also, along with our earthly lives, possess, Scripture tells us, eternal souls souls that live on after death, souls that will one day be brought back to our resurrected bodies and will end up living forever in one of two places. Either in the presence of Christ in the eternal kingdom of heaven where we enjoy Him forever or in hell under the wrath of God as the justice of God is dispensed upon those who refuse to repent of their sin in this life. Those are the two options. And if that is the case, how much more ought we to protect our souls from blind spiritual guides? It's one thing to be, protect ourselves from going out on African wilderness with a clumsy leader, but how much more should your eternal soul be entrusted to those who are not blind? Those who lead them everywhere but the Lord are to be avoided those who lead people into a pit rather than to the Lord who is praised to be praised forever. So what exactly follows these disparaging words to the Pharisees? Why does Jesus call them blind guides? Well, they are condemned, like I said, for their caginess of speech and Jesus is going to make it clear to them and to the crowds and to us that every oath we take any promise we make, anything we commit to doing, any deal we might enter into with another person, every one of them, look at verse 22, is made by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. A simpler way to say this would be like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.37. Let what you say simply be yes or no for anything more than this comes from evil so if you profess to be a follower of the lord then listen to me all of your words all of your all of our promises all of our contracts are to be fulfilled and carried out according to your word because every word we speak as representatives of christ as children of christ come as From us as ambassadors of our Lord on earth. Every word we speak, whether we think we make them in private or whether we make them in public, is spoken in the hearing of the Lord who is everywhere. And so we cling to our words even to our hurt. And also recognize that every word we speak about one another or another human being is also spoken in the presence of the Lord who hears every single one of them. And so as believers, not only are we careful about the oaths and the deals that we enter into because we must fulfill them, but we are careful to speak about one another in such ways that we protect our reputations, protect each other's reputations... No word should be spoken about another person that you have not spoken to them because you love them. So for this reason, all of our words must be carefully selected. All of our oaths must be carefully entered into because we must represent the Lord well in the area of our words, our promises, and our commitments. Because think about it. We live in a day when everybody's word is suspect, don't we? In a day when we lack trust in most of our institutions and in most of the individuals with which we commune. And when our instinct, when our first response is to doubt the truthfulness of another's words to doubt the truthfulness of another's intentions, when we don't as a society trust media outlets, government officials, neighbors, when suspicion is the rule of the day, oh, what a contrast we who love Christ ought to be. Oh, how distinct and different we ought to be when it comes to the way we speak and the way we carry out our commitments. Oh, that our world could have no other option than to take Christ's people at their word because we always come through on our word. Our yes is always yes and our no is always no. Our speech is never slanderous or defamatory, but we speak in hopeful, excellent, and morally upright manner about all things and all people. Oh, what a witness to the world that would be, our simple honesty, our unvarnished truth, our unwavering dedication to the fulfillment of our word, that we, above all people, for the sake of Christ's name and his reputation, that we are the most genuine, honest, virtuous, upstanding, and trustworthy people on the planet. Oh, that we might never imitate the example that has been set for us by the blind guides in our world, one that is filled with duplicity and deception, with character assassination and libel, with loopholes and ways to try and evade actually doing what we say we're going to do. Oh, that we might not be like those in the world whose goal is simply to acquire more for themselves and so they will use deception in order to accumulate it. They want more, that want more attention and more respect and more adoration and more money and more of the world's goods, and they'll use trickery and double dealing in their words and their attitudes to attain and achieve that goal. May that never be for us. This was the domain of the scribe and the Pharisee, who for a variety of reasons established over time this complex and bewildering system of oath-taking in order to justify and convince themselves that they remained righteous even as they violated and betrayed their words. You see how subtle and cagey we are with ourselves, right? We are masters at justifying and convincing ourselves that all manner of sin that we commit is somehow okay while everybody else is wicked and evil and ought to be lambasted and slandered for theirs. How did the Pharisees come to this? What led them to create such a system? Well, it all goes back to their understanding of the purpose and the function of the Mosaic Law. That law that is found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Mosaic Law, the law that God handed to them and commanded them to live in accordance with it. It's good to understand this. It's good to be reminded of this every so often because when we misunderstand the intention and purpose of God's law, we can end up like the scribes and the Pharisees. We can be those blind guides who have no clue where they're going and have no clue where they're leading those who would look to them for help and guidance and insight. For the scribe and the Pharisee, the law of God and, the, and obedience to that law was the pathway to righteousness in God's sight. Meaning, if you wanted to be accepted by, acceptable to, righteous in the sight of, loved by, and considered virtuous in His sight, in the, in the sight of God, then you must perform and do all of the commands in order to gain and to achieve and to lay hold of God's love, to be accepted by Him. Now hopefully, you've attended here long enough to know that that is not true. This is not, it has never been the purpose of God's law. God's law functions in the opposite way. God's law actually reveals to every single one of us the impossibility of measuring up to His perfect holy standard. The law is meant and designed not to make us feel self-righteous, but to crush us underneath its weight and drive us into the saving arms of our Lord Jesus Christ as we place faith in Him and bow our knee to Him and then are saved by His perfect and abundant grace. So hear it again. In the mind of the Pharisee, obedience to the law was what saved them. Obedience to the law was what made God love them in their own minds. The Apostle Paul has something to say about this mentality. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle calls it, this mentality, a different gospel. It is not the biblical gospel. It is a different gospel. And he goes on and he said, those who believe that their goodness secures the affection of God, that their obedience secures the salvation of their soul, believes in what Paul says in Galatians 1, 8 is an accursed gospel. All who believe and teach that we can be justified and made righteous in and secure the affection of God by our obedience, Paul says this is accursed. Because again, the law of God is meant to reveal our inability to gain righteousness before the Lord in our own strength. Romans 3.23 says it clearly, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. I mean, we all fall short of His perfect standard. We all violate the commandments of God. And there is, apart from Jesus Christ Himself, who is God come to us in the flesh, there is no one who ever has, who ever can gain or win God's love by obedience to God's commands. Instead, you and I, I think we would intuitively sense and we would know by our experience that our lives are characterized, well, maybe just mine, but hopefully I, you can admit it too. My life is characterized by an abundance of shortcomings, an abundance of failure to hit the mark, numerous falling, shorts, falling short of God's perfect law. Is it just me? I fail to live up to the righteous, holy standard of God every single day. But God's law calls us to confess our sin, to repent, to turn to Christ in faith. That's what the law drives us to. And that faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of His grace. A grace that our God loves to shower upon everyone who calls out, to his name, calls out to Him. And it is by this grace that we are saved. It is by His grace that you and I are renewed and transformed. It is by His grace that the Holy Spirit brings about the new birth in us. It is, about, it is by His grace that we are made new people in Christ. And as the Holy Spirit resides in us and dwells in us, then, then out of love for the Lord, in response to His saving work in us, that in, at that moment, we want to be holy. We want and desire to live holy, obedient lives. And so we plumb the Scriptures to know the will of God and then by the power of the Holy Spirit in us strive to, the great, the great, uh, to our great effort, as much effort as we can put in, to live in accordance with God's law. It's the result of salvation not what purchases your salvation. And you and I are going to fail quite often. The scribes and Pharisees, holding to the idea that obedience to the law rather than the grace of God saves us, lived according to their belief. And because they thought that obedience to the law was what uh, won their affection in God's eyes, this is what led to them creating this ridiculous system of loopholes that they operated by. Think about it. If this is how they understood the law, that obedience to it makes God love them, then it makes perfect sense that they would first begin to labor with a singular devotion and a meticulous attention to detail to, f- to obey everything that's commanded in the law, right down to the smallest letter. And it makes sense, perfect sense then, too, that if in their own minds, they had indeed followed God's law to the letter if they would then, that they would then look down in judgment and condemnation upon those who hadn't lived up to their standard, who hadn't put in the same level of effort as they had. And isn't that kind of still a problem for us today? We can get so caught up, right, in condemning and judges, judging others who don't, kinda, who don't seem to meet our self-defined level of effort and we, like the Pharisees, can get, up, get caught up in uh, comparing the worst attributes of another person with our best and our strongest areas of obedience, of obedience. We can get caught up in judging and rolling our eyes at the lesser people around us every day. For the Pharisee, you might hear them say, Yuck, look at those prostitutes and those tax collectors. And then look at me. I fast twice a week, all the while hiding and covering over the fact that they themselves are humongous hypocrites and and sinners. Oh, we can be so deceptive with ourselves in this area, right? We too can think to ourselves, Look at them! They don't work as hard as I do. They don't know as much as I know. They don't understand the world the way they should. They don't fight for the same political causes that I do. Look at those tax collectors and look at those prostitutes. And then look at me. I give to my church. I vote the correct way. I know more. I work harder than any of them. God, I thank you that I am not like them. And if you don't think that you roll your eyes at those you think less of than yourself... I want you to pay attention to your attitude the next time you drive. Next time you drive and you get stuck behind someone who is driving slower than you'd like to drive. Or the next time someone makes some boneheaded error on the road. Maybe they cut you off. Or maybe they're driving in front of you and they kind of don't know where they're going and so they put their signal on, but then they turn it off and they get back on the road and you're behind them and you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Come on! You know, you throw up your hands, you mouth a few words, you drive by them, obviously like rolling your eyes at them. You know? As if you and I haven't ourselves made all of those same mistakes at some point while we are driving? As if you and I are perfect drivers. Or again, think about how many times in your life you've said things like, people are so dumb. In essence, you're saying, they're all dumb in comparison to me. You are saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. It's part of our nature. It's part of our own fleshly weakness that we, like the scribes and Pharisees, elevate ourselves above others. And it's not just something that one or two of us do, it's something we are all in a battle against. It's this very mentality that Jesus sought to correct when he described the scene in the temple as a Pharisee went to, the, went to the temple to pray in Luke chapter 18. And the Pharisee stood up and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I get. And if we spend enough time honestly reflecting on this word, we'll all find areas in our lives where we more resemble the Pharisee than the tax collector. We resemble the legalistic, self-exalting mentality of the Pharisee than we do the, the tax collector who understands his desperate need for God's mercy kneeling beside him. And in praying and thinking this way, the Pharisee reveals his understanding of God's law, that if I follow it, I am better than those who don't. I am better than those who are not at my level. And as a result, I am more acceptable to, I am more loved by, I am more righteous in the sight of God than those other lesser folks are. You know what? You know what? I, I, I'm one of God's favorites. But if this is how they thought, if this is how you think, know this. You and I know when we read God's Word that the weight of God's law is a crushing weight. Neither the scribes nor the Pharisees, nor any of our heroes in the past, nor any of our heroes today, nor any of you, nor myself, have ever or can ever live up to this crushing weight that is God's perfect holiness. And for this reason, Jesus interacts with the scribes and Pharisees throughout his earthly ministry and repeatedly strikes at the heart of this dependence that they had on their external religion as the way by which people are accepted and righteous in the sight of God. Jesus continually struck at this idea that obedience to the law can save anyone. He struck at the idea that the most painstaking and exacting and diligent efforts of the Pharisees, they didn't even come close to meeting the perfect standard of righteousness that is set forth for us in God's Word. Jesus makes it even more clear He makes it clear that even the most visibly pious men in the nation, pious meaning the most observant and seemingly holy and righteous, the ones who practice their religion most, even they fell infinitely short of the requirement. Saying to the crowds in chapter 5, verse 20 of Matthew's gospel, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And then later on in that same sermon, he says this to make it even clearer. Listen. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did you hear that? Did you hear the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now such a statement as this ought to raise alarm bells for every one of us in here as it did for those who heard Jesus say it. How can anyone be perfect as God is perfect? How can anyone achieve or attain such a level of perfection? That is just too far out of reach. And those hearing Jesus must have thought as he said this to the Pharisees, they must have thought, the crowds must have thought, how can any of us live more righteously than the Pharisees? Especially given that their entire lives, right down to the very second, are dedicated to strictly obeying the law of God in every single detail. The answer to that question is, those crowds couldn't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. The scribes and Pharisees couldn't do it. And that's the point these scribes and Pharisees had made it their mission to strive for perfect obedience to the law. However, like any one of us knows who strives for the same thing, they couldn't actually do it. If you're anything like me, there are times when you hit your, put your head on the pillow at night and you say, God, I am so sorry for the ways that I messed up. Oh, I can, this one and this one and that one and this one and I shouldn't have said this and I shouldn't have thought that and I shouldn't have done And you just list them all and you say, tomorrow by the power of the Holy Spirit, please, I'm going to do it differently. You wake up and before you eat breakfast, you've done the same thing again. That's my life. And so, as all of the dishonest types do, the Pharisees and the scribes, instead of recognizing and running to Christ in faith, or running to God in faith, they simply chose to adjust, to obscure, and to misinterpret, and to redefine the laws and commands of God in ways that suited them. This is how we come to this convoluted system. They narrowed the definition of certain laws in order to pat themselves on the back for obeying them, and when they needed to, they added a bunch of extra rules and regulations and conditions to other commands to ensure that they could justify and cover over their failure to live up to that command while pushing, putting themselves forward to the community as those who are perfectly obedient. They looked to win the favor and approval of God and men by interpreting the law of God in such a way that they could follow it and fool themselves and others into believing that they were actually living righteous, God-honoring, God-accepted lives in their own strength. And Jesus looked at them square in the face and dismantled their entire system of supposed righteousness by revealing their continual misunderstanding of the law's function, constantly telling them, it's not the intention of the law to save anyone. It's not the intention of the law to make anyone righteous before the Lord. The law performs and still performs to this very day not a saving function, but a revelatory function. The law reveals certain truths to us, but the law is powerless to address or fix those truths. Truths revealed to us in the law include, first... We are unable to win or secure God's affection by any level of righteousness in ourselves. Hopefully I've repeated that enough that we get that. Keeping the law will not save anyone. A truth that was made clear by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Did you hear that? No human being will be justified by works of the law. Instead, as you'll say in Romans 3.19, the law brings knowledge of sin, stops every mouth, and holds the entire world accountable to God. That's what the law does. The law serves to reveal to you and I what we really are. And as much as our culture and the spirit of our age is going to disagree with this, the law reveals that every single one of us in here, anyone watching, anyone who's going to watch, anyone in the world is a worthless, dirty, filthy, odious, repulsive sinner in the eyes of the Lord. And that might be difficult for you to hear, but that is what the Bible says about you and I. With this made clear to us in and by the law, we ought to then, as a result, recognize that we need some help from outside of ourselves. We need a righteousness to come to us from outside of ourselves. We need someone or something outside of us to both purchase the required righteousness for us and then to apply that righteousness to us and then to create it in us. And when we recognize that this is the function of the law, it's actually a liberating experience because it pushes us in the direction of the only source of perfect righteousness. Jesus, God come to us in the flesh. As we recognize our desperate wickedness and sinfulness and turn to Christ in faith, that sinfulness is dealt with in and by the sacrificial death of Christ. And the righteous perfection that we require is given to us as the Lord applies His perfect life to us. It is credited to our account. The cross takes our sin away. The life of Jesus applies that righteousness to us. Then we are saved. And this is important to note because so many of us have a pharisaical view of God's law. We live as though failure to keep God's law causes God to turn his face from us in anger and success in keeping God's law tends to cause God to love us a little bit more. You must always remember that the true child of God, for the true child of God, the perfect love for you as a child of Christ, saved by grace alone through faith alone in his name, is neither increased by your obedience or diminished by your sinful shortcomings. When God looks at you, he sees forgiven and perfect in Christ. the apostle paul who experienced the same struggles as we do put this process into words for us when he wrote to the roman church describing his and by extension our difficulties my one of my favorite texts in all of scripture romans chapter 7 i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate i have the desire to do what is right but i don't have the ability to carry it out I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice what Paul did here, and notice what he didn't do. He didn't try to adjust the law. He didn't try to misinterpret it in such a way that he could follow it and feel good about himself. No, he let the law perform its function. He let it reveal His wretchedness which led Him to ask the question we should all be asking. Well, if I'm so wretched, who can save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And it leads us to the only answer to this question. God, through Christ, pouring out His grace upon us. To think of God's law as some sort of mechanism whereby we increase his affection for us as his children is the same error that the scribes and the Pharisees made. The law is designed to bring us to the place of the tax collector in Luke 18 in contrast to the Pharisee who supposes or who touts his supposed righteousness before the Lord. You remember the tax collector said, God, I thank you like I am not, that I am not like other men. But in uh, 1813, the tax collector says this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus summed up the parable saying in Luke 18, 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. So this righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is not some external obedience to the law. They tried that. We've tried that. We've all failed miserably. But instead of being driven to Christ, what they did is they changed, misinterpreted, and created complex systems and loopholes by which to disobey the law of God while fooling themselves into thinking that they've, they've kept it. Instead, the righteousness that exceeds the, that of the Pharisees is given to you and I as a gift. When we recognize our sinfulness before the Lord, thanks to the law... And call out in faith and trust to Jesus, who both lived and died, to set us free and secure for us the righteousness that we can't secure for ourselves. That's what the law is supposed to do. But for the Pharisees, nowhere was their hypocrisy, blindness, and failure to live up up to the law more evident than in this area of swearing oaths. The Old Testament is very clear about this oath-taking. Leviticus 19.12 says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30 says this, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 6 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 23 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it from you and you will be guilty of sin. Now some have sought to make these New Testament words of Christ prohibitions against all oaths at this time. But we know that when oaths are made with gravity and seriousness, they are used to highlight or call attention to our increased dedication and commitment to faithfulness and honesty in this area. You can see it in the court system, right? If any of us are to testify in a court of law, we take a serious oath highlighting our dedication to the speaking of truth in that court of law. And also, with great seriousness and gravity, when we enter into marriage... We make multiple oaths and multiple promises to the one whose hand we take. When I perform a wedding ceremony, I will ask, in taking so-and-so to be your spouse, do you promise to honor and to love and to cherish them in sickness and in health, in poverty as in wealth, in seasons of hardship as in seasons of blessing until death parts you and my expectation is that the participants answer in the affirmative and take that oath seriously and spend their lives fulfilling that oath so what oaths then are prohibited the great reformer john calvin gives us a good description when he wrote and i quote all oaths are unlawful which in any way abuse and profane the sacred name of god for which they ought to have had the effect of producing deeper reverence So there are oaths that profane the name and oaths that bring deeper reverence. So you see, the Pharisees used oaths as a way to look good in the eyes of everyone around them. They used oaths to highlight themselves, far from using oaths to reverence and highlight honesty, truthfulness, reliability. They used oaths in ways that simply masked deception. And over time, their complex web of oaths and vows, far from highlighting honesty, became so Commonplace in Jewish society that no one people started not taking oaths seriously at all. Even worse when people started hearing vows and oaths being spoken in Israel they started to see those oaths as a mark of deception. So how did that happen? See the primary intention of the texts from which the rabbis had drawn their teaching on oaths centered on truthfulness and honesty in the heart. So if you look at Leviticus 19.12 again, you read, remember, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That text is intended to eliminate all falsehood. But what the, what the rabbis did is they pulled out this phrase, by my name. They focused on those exact words and said if those aren't in there, it doesn't matter what oath you make, it's non-binding. Which is a complete violation of the intention of that text. And so it got to the point where the Jews, the Pharisees made oaths all the time, developing their elaborate labyrinth where oaths in the name of the Lord were separate and of a higher importance than oaths made by heaven or oaths made by earth or oaths made by Jerusalem. They would choose to swear in the name of whatever it was that would impress the hearer most and they would come short of saying, by the name of the Lord. And the Mishnah, this is the written record of the rabbi's, discussing and figuring out how to apply the law of God in the life of Israelites during the time from, like we talked about last week, the rise of the Pharisees after the Seleucids were defeated up to Jesus' day. The, rabbis, the discussion of the rabbis as to how to live out God's law is captured in this called the Mizla, Mishnah. And it, gives us, it speaks actually extensively about oaths, giving us insight into the convoluted system. Listen to this. This is what the Mishnah says. Four kinds of vows the sages, quote, have declared not to be v- binding vows of incitement, meaning when someone threatens you into making a vow, vows of exaggeration, vows made in error, and vows that cannot be fulfilled by reason of constraint. Meaning that if an event came up in your life that made it difficult to keep your vow, you didn't have to keep your vow. Now, with so many options, how often do you think the average oath-taker at this time would appeal to one of these declarations in order to get out of a vow that they had made? And that chipped away at the trust of the people. Again, the Mishnah says this, and I quote, A man may say, Let no vow that I vow hereafter be binding, provided that he is mindful of this in the moment of his vow. This is insanity. It. According to this, it was entirely possible that someone that you entered into an oath with had already made some vow to themselves that made all their future vows non-binding. And how would another person know that you had done that? Which again, chipped away at the trust people had in each other's words. And again, third... And I quote, if a man said in his vow, may it be to me as the lamb or as the temple sheds or as the wood for the burning on the altar or as the fire offerings or as the altar or as Jerusalem, or if he uttered any of the utensils on the altar, though he didn't utter the word korban, meaning an offering, it is a vow as binding as if he had uttered the word korban. But if he said, may it be Jerusalem instead of as Jerusalem, he said nothing, meaning he's not committed himself to a binding oath. Did you see that level of intricacy? If the Pharisee making an oath with you slipped in the words, may it be Jerusalem, instead of, may it be as Jerusalem, the oath wasn't binding. An even more complicated system of loopholes followed as the religious leaders provided escape clauses for almost every vow in life. Listen to these. their, Their life was one big show, one big production. Listen to all of these loopholes with regards to vows. According to the rabbis, if a man vowed to abstain from that which is cooked, he could eat that which was roasted. If a man abstained from what is cooked in a pot, he was forbidden, only forbidden food that was boiled in the pot, not food that's roasted or cooked in some other way. If a man abstained from food that's preserved, he was only forbidden to eat preserved vegetables. I mean, I could do that. I could avoid vegetables. If a man said, I'm going to abstain from fish, listen to this. If a man said he was going to abstain from fish, he could still eat pickled and chopped fish. If a man said, I'm going to abstain from wine, he could still drink the wine of apples. If a man said, I'm going to stay, abstain from entering my house, he was still permitted to enter the upper room of his house. The man said, I'm going to abstain from a bed. He was permitted to sleep on a couch. You see, every vow a person could make in this time had some sort of loophole written into it that would ensure that they could live their lives in any way that they wanted while looking super spiritual as they made some sort of vow. The only vow that a Jewish person was absolutely required to keep, an oath that was binding in all circumstances, were the oaths that were made in the name of the Lord. And so this became rarer and rarer as they substituted his name for a host of other things, like we see in Matthew 23 here. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, the temple, altar, the gift on the altar, and even these had varying levels of importance, which is why Jesus brings this up in his woe. It is this system of oath taking whereby dishonesty, deception, and outright lying were covered over and justified that Jesus is rebuking and correcting here when he said in verse 35 of our text, But I say to you, do not, oh, it's not 35, sorry, 16 to 25, or whatever it is. You know it. Look at Matthew 23. (laughs) But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Oh, this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So while the scribes and the Pharisees could make small and minute distinctions between oaths and what was called to witness upon what, Christ here and in the Sermon on the Mount puts it all to rest, saying this, it doesn't matter what you call upon in your oath because it all belongs to God and is therefore an oath in his name. To assume that one could simply substitute God for something else, heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, and make it less binding? Pharisees, that's a lie. Oath makers swear by the name of God, regardless of whether they swear by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, because heaven is the abode of God, where the throne of God resides. God lays claim on heaven, and therefore to invoke heaven is to invoke God and to swear in his name, and you are liable to fulfill your oath. Earth, meaning the actual planet, is the footstool of God. Therefore, to invoke earth is to invoke the name of God. Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And therefore, uh, it it is where God has chosen to make his presence visible on earth, in the temple and in the great king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To invoke the altar, to invoke the gold or the gift on the altar, to invoke the temple, to invoke the gold in the temple. All of these vows are as binding as those were where the name of the Lord is expressly used. So, Jesus here started with oaths invoking heaven, worked his way down to the smallest of oaths, and said this No matter the distance, no matter the scale, no matter what it is, only God Himself has claim on it. And so, to take an oath by anything is to invoke His sovereign name, and as a result, is binding. It was a severe denunciation of the Pharisaic practice of basically acceptable deceit and lying. And an affirmation of the fact that for you and I, every single word we utter is important. All of our words must be truthful. Every one of the words that you as a child of Christ speaks is spoken before the Lord in the presence of the Lord and is an invocation of the Lord's name. Which is why Jesus ends his initial word in Matthew 5 with let your yes be yes and your no be no. And amplifies his condemnation against the Pharisees in chapter 23, saying, you blind fool. A word that actually means, you stupid men, lacking in sound judgment and in the fear of the Lord. We ought to learn from this condemnation of the Pharisees that every word we speak as children of the Lord is an invocation of his name. And therefore, every word that we speak is a word spoken in the name of the Lord, which means that every lie we speak is our taking of the Lord's name in vain. Every slander we commit is a taking of the Lord's name in vain. Every defamation, every non-follow-through, every time your yes means no and your no means yes, it is all a violation of the command in Exodus chapter 20 that we shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain." This speaks to the state of our hearts. It's not about the words we use in anger, it's about every word we speak. And this is, the, this is the righteousness that is of a different quality than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Every one of your words is to be measured and truthful with no attempts to deceive, with all efforts and intention to follow through on what you say. All of our words must be honest, all of our dealings with one another genuine. This is the requirement of God for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we be known as men and women of integrity to such a high degree that we don't even need vows to buttress or validate our words. The standard of God for our words is absolute truthfulness because, again, every one of our words is an invocation of His name. Every one of our words is spoken as His representative on earth. And listen, this aim at truthfulness is not an easy task because God so clear, God's truth so clearly strikes at the pride wells, that wells up in each one of us. And it is common to become the enemy of those instead of the friend of those with whom we are truthful. The enemy instead of the friend of our fellow sinners. All because we do, in fact, live a life of truthfulness. Because if you think about it, we aren't actually accustomed to hearing one another speak the truth in love, are we? We're accustomed to telling people, to hearing people tell us what we want to hear while withholding the truth. Because we all know that none of us receives truthful words well, do we? We all speak to one another in ways that protect our own selves from the possible results of truth-telling by avoiding loopholes and evasions that we make for ourselves. And we never actually speak the truth to one another even though we see and know some of the destructive patterns in each other's lives. We are called to be people who recognize that truth has no degrees, no shades. Truth is truth. It is what we speak. It is what we accept, even when it is difficult to hear. So we recognize half-truths are lies, and therefore taking the Lord's name in vain. Misrepresentations are lies, and therefore taking the Lord's name in vain. Little white lies are are lies and therefore taking the Lord's name in vain. Exaggerations are lies and are a taking of the Lord's name in vain. Flattery, and I've heard it spoken to me by a dear saint, which is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back, is a lie and a taking of our Lord's name in vain. So I leave you with this. We must commit to keeping ourselves for the glory of God, for the sake of the church, for the community of faith, to being people of truth, to being people whose yes is yes and whose no is no, to being a people who are truthful to one another, to being a people who do what we say, who fulfill our promises, who speak with clarity that is true, both to each other and to the world we live in. May we be people who live in accordance with the command you shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? Because the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we honor you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that as we look through these woes and denunciations that you pronounced against the Pharisees that they are so instructive and informative in our own lives. Because in many ways, we suffer from the same inclinations and dispositions as the Pharisees that we so easily judge in Scripture. So I ask that you would help us to eliminate our Pharisaical tendencies by the power of your Spirit. And I pray that as we enter into that battle, as we fight that battle, that each and every one of us is fighting, that we would not look down on those who are a little bit behind and not slander those who might be a little bit ahead that we would all weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice as we all grow up into the image and likeness of Christ according to your will. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.